Good morning, everybody. Um, so we are going to be in the book of Numbers, like was mentioned, uh, starting in Numbers 5. So we're going to be looking at God-centered values and priorities in the instructions that were given to Israel here. Um, some things that I think are important to keep in mind, just in terms of time frame and context. So kind of like peeling way back, there was an introductory lesson that I gave um, in December last year, just kind of dealing with the value of the Old Testament to New Testament Christians. And we looked at how in the Old Testament we're encouraged to see lessons and principles that give us encouragement and hope and help bring a lot of intangible things of the New Covenant and God's character. And the Old Testament helps bring those things to more tangible and clearer light when we're looking at the Old Testament from a New Testament Christ-like perspective. Now, in Israel, this is still the very beginning of their history. So Israel's been delivered out of Egypt really just one year before the events that we're going to be studying this morning. And by the way, so this is like um, four and a half chapters. So this isn't going to be like a detailed like reading and explanation of each section. So this is going to be more, even through all of Numbers, more like pointing out lessons and generalizing and summarizing things. But in Exodus 19, when they first came to Mount Sinai, again, this, that's about a year before the events that we're reading here, God said something very important in Exodus 19. He said, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So these final instructions that God gives to the nation come right after God had positioned himself nationally, physically, physically and nationally. God had positioned himself in the center of the nation as they're preparing to move as a nation to the land of Canaan. And these final instructions, I think, convey that God was preparing them not to just see him as the physical center, they weren't just to see that his position was at their center nationally, but in individual practice and in the individual's heart within the nation. Because really, learning to become holy is critical. When the nation would be in the wilderness, this wasn't a time for like industry. This wasn't a lot of time to make worldly innovations or anything like that. It was a time to embrace God to learn about God, to learn about his holiness, to embrace his ways, again, not just nationally, but individually. And the nation wouldn't succeed just because of who they were as a nation out of Egypt, but who they would choose to be on an individual level. And that's ultimately what we see in the book of Numbers, breaking them again and again. There, there are national failures we see in the book of Numbers again and again. But really where that stems from is individual failure to uphold the individual instructions, right? So again, holiness, not just something for the nation in the most general sense nationally. Holiness isn't just something for the priests and Levites. But God was working through these instructions we're going to see again to weave together the threads of the tabernacle and what that was for, the tent where God would dwell in a sense and march among his people, the Levites, the priests, and the nation. God was working to weave them together. 
And so I think it helps bring clarity why these instructions, Numbers 5 through 914, these are all instructions that would unite the individual, the Levite, and the priest to value each other, to work together, and to identify with one another for God's purpose to fulfill it. So that's what we're going to see. So again, the title of the lesson, God-Centered Values and Priorities, is really going to be what we're going to see here in weaving together priest, Levite, tabernacle, and Israelite all together here. So this is, again, just, I think, a helpful picture of what we studied last month, um, that God would be in the center in the tabernacle, the tent that we've talked about, and then around the tabernacle would be the Levites, almost like a guard to protect and reverence the tabernacle and its presence. And then God would position then on specific sides the nation of Israel to structure them and organize them to have a clear sense of accountability on a national level. And all of this, again, it's all to equip individual obedience within the nation. So we're just going to start in chapter 5, and what we're going to do is just work through... Um, each section, and just briefly make some points per section. And so in chapter 5, really, we see uh, three instructions that all relate to sacrificial confession. We're going to see sacrifice really related to all of these things. So chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, we're going to start with the nation being instructed to send the unclean outside the camp. So I'll read this. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the sons of Israel that they send away from the camp every leper and everyone having a discharge and everyone who is unclean because of a dead person. You shall send away both male and female. You shall send them outside the camps that they will not defile their camp where I dwell in their midst. The sons of Israel did so and sent them outside the camp just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Thus the sons of Israel did. So we actually don't see any failure in Israel, at least in numbers, not until they begin to move. They're still at Mount Sinai. This is now the beginning of the second year after they've gone out of Egypt. Still at Mount Sinai, haven't moved yet. And we're just going to see success, success, success. So a lot of successful things happening is they're practicing the ordinances, the rituals. It's when they move in chapter 10 and 11 when their faith is more tested, when their hearts are tested, that's where we really see critical failure in the nation, really the breakdown of their relationship with God on a national level. But here, again, verse 4, this is emphasized in these beginning sections over and over as they did exactly as God commands. So no problems in these sections and disobedience. But what are they doing? So in verse 2, they command everybody unclean to go outside of the camp. Back in Leviticus, which, side note about Leviticus, Leviticus and the first 10 chapters of Numbers all really take place in two months. So the tabernacle at the end of Exodus is erected, it's built, it's all structured at the end of Exodus in the first month after the first month of the second year after they came out of Egypt. And then we'll see in chapter 7, chapter 9, that there's other things that are happening within this time frame. This is all a very tight time frame in Israel's history here. So in Leviticus chapter 11 through 15, things about what it means to be unclean and how you handle that are all detailed. And something that I think is important to keep in mind is being unclean was not itself something necessarily sinful at all. In fact, even when a woman would give birth to a child, she would be un become unclean for a period of time. So obviously, you know, giving birth 
isn't a sinful decision to make, right? So really, there are natural things that if you go through Leviticus 11, and 11 through 15, there are a lot of natural things that just happen to a person really on a fairly consistent basis that would cause you to become unclean. So really, everybody would experience needing to go outside of the camp at some point. And really what this would do is this would emphasize things about their condition and the effect of their condition in some clear physical way, the effect of their condition in connection with God first and the nation around them. And really this law would emphasize very heavily that this nation was a body of interconnected people who have a very clear, very critical effect on one another, right? I think we can see this in things that are very relatable with like coronavirus, you know, like somebody who has corona, even if they're not experiencing symptoms, they have to like quarantine and get away for a little bit. And so God was treating clean and unclean like that, where even if you hadn't sinned, you could be unclean and in a sense you have to quarantine away from the nation. And so just think about the effect it would have to see individuals practicing this, right? The other thing about this is this was something that could be hidden. Like there are a lot of conditions where if you just lied about it or stayed silent, people wouldn't know that you were unclean and you wouldn't have to experience the inconvenience of having to go all the way outside the camp and be isolated for a period of time. And then on top of that, if you admitted you were unclean, for most things that related to uncleanness, once you were clean, you had to go all the way to the altar. You had to bring sacrifices to the tabernacle, to the priests. You have to go through these rituals to be pronounced officially clean again. So there were a lot of like, quote unquote, inconvenient things that you would need to do to follow through on this entire process. But it didn't mean that you were abandoned. So people who are unclean, we'll see this at the end of chapter, uh, well, not the end of chapter nine, the beginning of chapter nine, but what we'll be looking at the end of the lesson is being unclean didn't mean like you were outside the camp to be forgotten and abandoned, but rather this was to be the extent of the work, the priests and Levites. They were to remember both their obligation to the nation and they were going to need to remember that they had an obligation also to remember the people outside the camp to also go to them, teach them, help them, cleanse them, motivate them. So again, this would remind them of their condition that everybody is bonded together, not in their perfection, but in their brokenness and in their weakness. And I want you to think about how important that is. Just think about that in a new covenant way. What bonds us together? Is it that we can become so perfect that we no longer have any weaknesses, difficulties, or sin that needs to be uprooted out of our lives? Or are we bonded together by our broken mutual need for God's mercy, God's help, God's power? Whereas you have people like the Pharisees who believe that if they had enough rituals or washed their hands enough, that they would never become unclean and never be seen as someone who had to ever go outside the camp. Is that what God ever intended? I would say not. So again, this would bond everyone together to see their need for God's power, need for mercy, and this would be something that would bond the nation together with the Levites and the priests. The next series of verses re reinforce something that's actually said in Leviticus 6, 1 through 7, that when there was sin in anybody's life, they needed to confess that sin. But if they had stolen anything, if they had taken anything, if they had lied about anything, there's this word restitution. They had to make restitution for their sin and actually give back more than, what, than was taken. So look at verse 7. 
Then he shall confess his sins which he has committed and he shall make restitution in full for his wrong and add to it one-fifth of it. So that's 120% that's being given back. And give it to him who he has wronged. Um, I want you to think about this with like somebody like Zacchaeus who actually went above and beyond this like on a grand scale. Do you remember when he stayed with Jesus? He said, Lord, if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much, which I think shows how much more convicting Jesus is than just the standard of the law. But this is the idea in Israel is, you know, there needed to be an honest confession to fully reconcile these kinds of situations. So if clean and unclean, this wasn't something that you needed to hide or should have hidden, but you're honest about it and God has a way of fully reconciling things that those within the camp are reconciled and restored and they are whole. And that's as true for sinful conditions as it would be for physical conditions in Israel as well. So there was no exception to this. Verse 8, this clarifies something that is not stated in Leviticus 6. And again, this is, I think, related to how these things are reinforcing Levites, priests, and individuals outside of that. What the law clarified is, let's say you stole something from someone, but they're dead. And they don't have any relatives either. Is it like, well, I guess I get to keep it now. No, you see in verse 8, if he has no relative to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution which is made for the wrong must go to the Lord for the priest besides the ram of atonement. And so there was no exception. If you couldn't give it back to the person that you had stolen it from or any of their relatives, you're still not getting away with it because God knows, right? So you give it to the priest, to the Lord instead, ultimately, right? So think about what this is making the nation on an individual scale if they're being obedient to these things. Think about the tender hearts this would put within the people of Israel, the enlightenment of their effect on others, their obligation to others, and just this idea of humbling yourself, confessing your sin, restoring what you had taken, and actually giving more beyond that. What kind of effect do you think this was meant to have on an individual level within the nation? And I think this helps clarify again, when we see national failure, it's actually an individual failure. What the failures later in Numbers tell us is individuals were not practicing or upholding these things, and therefore there were grander problems of faith that came out of that. Chapter 5, 11 through 31, is an extremely unusual law. Um, You'll only read it in Numbers, and the same with the Nazarite vow that um, is in the next chapter. But God has a law for exposing the truth if a husband has suspicions that his wife has committed adultery, but he has really no proof of it, and there aren't witnesses to it, and there's no second party that's confessing anything, right? So it's just suspicion. So verse 12 says, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, If a man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him, the man is in intercourse with her and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and she is undetected, although she has defiled herself, And there is no witness against her, and she has not been caught in the act. If a spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he is jealous of his wife when she has defiled herself, or if a spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he is jealous of his wife when she has not defiled herself, the man shall then bring his wife to the priest, shall bring as an offering for her one-tenth of an ephah of barley meal, shall not pour oil on it, nor put frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of a memorial reminder of iniquity. So, This can seem almost like an uneven law. Like the rest of the things we read 
you know, apply to male and female both. But this one seems a little strange because it doesn't say that a wife can bring her husband to the priest, but really only a husband bring his wife. But I want to suggest to you, a lot of these laws in Numbers and in Leviticus, I don't think are meant to be seen through the lens of worldly or arrogant abuse, but are meant to be seen through the lens of God's character. We'll talk more about that with the Nazarite vow. So I think it's critical that when we read these laws, we read them first through the lens of God's character, and that's where we start. I think there's a way where if we kind of pull back a little bit and think about God, that we can understand how this would actually protect women. You imagine in other cultures, if a husband was suspicious and aggressively accusing his wife of adultery with no basis, you might drag her out to the street and have her stoned to death or punished for something that she didn't even do. Whereas God is saying, no, no, there are not going to be baseless accusations. There are not going to be baseless uh, suppositions or suspicions. Rather, you're going to bring this to the priest. And you imagine a wife could demand this. If her husband is just being a jerk and accusing her of something that she knows that she hasn't done, well, bring me to the priest. Let's take care of this. Let's, let's settle the matter and let's let God decide between us. So in the rest of this, the priest brings the woman. Her hair is let down in verse 18. And something that's really interesting in verse 17 There's this holy water that's taken, which I imagine is from like the labor with the tabernacle. And dust from the tabernacle's floor is put and mixed into the water. And then he makes the woman take an oath saying like, you know, if if you're guilty, you you will be cursed. Your abdomen and your thigh will waste away. But if you are innocent, nothing's going to happen. The woman then at the end of this in verse 22 is to say, amen, amen. So she's, you know, taking responsibility for this. And then the priest writes the oath, the curse on a scroll, puts water on it, and then the words drain into the water. So now the water has the words of the curse, dust from the tabernacle's floor, and water from the laver that would be in front of the tabernacle. And he makes the woman drink it. They put the grain offering on the altar. And if the woman is guilty, her thigh will waste away, and her abdomen will swell, and she will become a curse among her people. So again, God is not allowing a woman to be subject to false accusation, but I think what's being revealed here is God knows, and when the judgment is brought to God, God reveals the truth. Something in verse 17 with the um, dust from the tabernacle being taken up, whether or not people witness sin within God's land, God knows. God knows anything that happens on his territory. Right? And so dust is taken, I think, to point to the fact that God knows what's done on his land, even in secret, even in private. So I think it shows not just for suspicions of adultery, God knows what's going on among his people. He knows what's being hidden among his people, and his law is meant to bring those hidden things to light. Right? Everything is open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do, as is stated in Hebrews chapter 4. And obviously what we see in this is God takes marital vows seriously, that God puts extra measures in place to encourage faithfulness in marriage, and that God desires faithfulness on every level with commitments and faithfulness with his people. So let's keep moving for the sake of time. So we have sacrificial honesty and confession in chapter 5, where God is trying to draw out things 
to cultivate honesty and reconciliation and faithfulness in his nation. All of this would involve priests, Levites, and Israelites working together and coming to the tabernacle. And in chapter 6 and 7, we see sacrificial devotion. So in verses 1 through 21... In verse 1, again the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, which that word just means literally separation or separated, consecrated, to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink, he shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink, nor shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh or dry grapes. All the days of his separation, he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grapevine, from the seeds even to the skin. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall pass over his head. He shall be holy until his days are fulfilled, for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall let the locks of his hair grow long. All the days of his separation to the Lord, he shall not go near to a dead person. He shall not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother for his brother or for his sister when they die because of his separation to God, because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. So something interesting about this is the restrictions for the Nazarite vow are similar to restrictions for priests. Uh, Leviticus chapter 10, after Nadab and Abihu are fried, and they die because of God's fire when they offered a strange sacrifice to the Lord. Um, something that God says is, priests are not to drink wine or strong drink, that they may be sober to discern between what is holy and profane. Leviticus 21, 10 through 11, law for a high priest. A high priest is not to defile himself for any dead person, father, mother, it doesn't matter. He is not to defile himself for any of these. The reason I bring this up is I think there actually is a very incredible importance to the principle involved in this. There are three Nazarites we know of in the Bible who not only were Nazarites, they were actually lifelong Nazarites. And it's kind of strange. They were pronounced Nazarites before they were born. Um, Samson, Judges 13. Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 1. And um, John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1. Those are the three people who we actually see before Jesus were Nazarites and actually lifelong, not just temporary commitment to it. Um, what was their role? So Samson, like, he failed on a catastrophic level. But do you remember who he was in Israel? He was a judge. He was a judge in Israel. And God gave him, like, superpowers to be able to, you know, I think the intention was restore the nation back to God, defeat God's enemies, and help the people see God, bring them to God. Again, Samson failed at every level at that, but that was, that was his role as a judge. Um, Samuel fulfilled the role. Samuel was dedicated to the Lord by his mother, Hannah, an amazing woman. And Samuel brought the nation to God. He brought the nation to a humble position, directed them to God, and taught them, right? John the Baptist, same thing. John the Baptist, like Samuel, prepared the way for the king, brought the people of God to the Lord, right? So how does this all fit together? In Exodus 19, God said, I will make you a kingdom of priests. I don't think what he says is really intended, well, just the Levites, just the priests. The priests and the Levites, those were, I think, the priests especially, they were the literal, like, physical priests. But could 
individuals in the nations do a spiritual work similar to what a priest was doing for Israel? Was Israel intended to be a blessing, not just to exist in Canaan, but to spread the knowledge of God all around them? And again, just like Samson, who I think actually is an illustration of Israel, God empowering Israel despite they failed catastrophically, could Israel have been an evangelistic nation? Could the individuals of Israel been motivated to commit themselves to God's purpose, to go and teach others, to try to bring more people to God? Absolutely they could have done that. But again, they failed. So this isn't meant to be just an achievement thing where, wow, you know, if I do the Nazarite vow, I'm like a super Jew if I do that. That's not it at all. Again, we have to see this through the lens of God's character first, not through the lens of pride or abuse. That's not the right way to approach anything within God's law. Um, another aspect of this in chapter 6, verse 18, I know this, this may seem insignificant, so I want to highlight why this is important. So you can fail a Nazarite vow, by the way. So like, if you become unclean, if you touch like the skin of a grape, you know, or eat a grape or whatever, touch a dead person, like you fail. And your Nazarite vow comes to an end and you don't get to do this thing that I think is meant to be one of the most incredible things anybody could ever do. So verse 18, the Nazarites, remember they don't shave their head, they don't cut their hair when they have the vow. The Nazarite shall then shave his dedicated, dedicated head of hair at the doorway of the tent of meeting and take the dedicated hair of his head and put it on the fire which is under the sacrifice of priests of the peace offerings. Did you know this is the only time anything from a person's body would ever be put on the fire of the altar? Ever. High priest offering, priest offering, doesn't matter. Nobody gets to put anything of their body ever on the altar. But you complete a Nazarite vow? That time that you spent in that vow, you get to put your hair, I know it, it may sound silly, right? Your hair goes on the altar, which never has anything from somebody get onto it. I want you to think about how precious this is to God then. You know, that, that time that you spent committed and consecrated to God for his purpose, again, not an achievement, not to make you feel more holy because, wow, I did it, I did the Nazarite vow, but rather you did God's work and you focused more on God's purpose for that time. How precious is that to God. It's like as it goes into the fire and disintegrates immediately, you know, God talks about the fire of the, of, of the altar as a sweet-smelling aroma to him. That time is a treasure stored up in heaven, and God keeps it as a treasure. There is nothing greater that could ever be accomplished in all Israel. Again, seems so small. It is so significant. And I think what this does is it teaches this vow being available, the goal for Levites and priests, encourage people to want to do this. Teach them about God so that they want to commit themselves to him. They want to do extreme things for God. They want to be holy. They want to be as holy as they can. They want to fulfill God's purpose. Again, the failure we see later, the priests failed. The Levites failed. Israel failed 
to do these things individually first. Then they failed on a national level because of that, right? This is the work of a priest. Encourage Israel to be sacrificially committed to the Lord. Value holiness first. Do you see why, by the way, the principle of that is very relatable? You know, think about even Jesus when he said, if you don't take up, fo- if you don't take up a cross, follow me, you're not worthy of me. If you love father, mother, brother, sister more than me, you're not worthy of me. So in a sense, Jesus took the commitment of a Nazarite vow and said, every person, because of what God has done, ought to be that committed to God's holiness and righteousness. Chapter 6, 22 through 27. I also love this little section. There's a priestly blessing here in verse 23. This is for Aaron and his sons. And they're to pronounce verse 24 through 26, this blessing on the nation of Israel. And I think this... What this does is it clarifies the purpose and the work of priests, the role of priests in the nation, that they are to be a blessing and they're stewards of good news. So let's read this in verse 24. This is what they're to say. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. And here's what's really amazing about this. Verse 27. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel and I will bless them. What? Because they're like just saying the words? What does it say about God's character? Just say this thing. I'm right there. Say the words. I'll act on them. You know, you imagine there should be priests just standing there all the time, just like over, just keep saying it, right? The role of priests was to be a blessing in the nation. Now think about this. What if I summarized it as the priest saying, grace and peace to you in the name of God? Does that sound familiar? Remember Paul's most common greeting to the churches? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know where Paul got that? He got that here, right? So just like in the New Testament letters, there's hard things that are said in our relationship with God, like hard things we need to do, right? He said grace and peace to you to the Galatians when that letter is fiery and it's, it's intense and there's rebuke that's strong in that letter. But what's Paul trying to do ultimately? He's trying to bring them into union ultimately with grace and peace. And that gives context for the harder things. The priests would need to teach difficult things, endure difficult things. They would need to do difficult things with the nation They'd have to sacrifice so much. They'd have to lose so much. But why? Because they are bringing their brethren into the grace and the peace of God. That's their role, right? Chapter 7. One of my favorite chapters, and I've been, (laughs) in thinking about numbers, I've been probably most excited to talk about this chapter. So I want to read this again, um, the whole thing this time, uh, through verse 11. Um, (laughs) So Numbers chapter 7, uh, 1 through 11. This is where the leaders of Israel, so time rewinds a little bit here. So at the end of Exodus, it's the first day of the first month of their second year. And this says this happens the day the tabernacle was set up. So that's at the end of Exodus, time is rewinding. Verse 1. Now on the day that Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle, he anointed it and consecrated it with all its furnishings and the altar and all its utensils. He anointed them and consecrated them also. Then the leaders of Israel, 
By the way, these are the same leaders from Numbers chapter 1 who numbered um, each of their tribes, the heads of the tribes, the same people. Then the leaders of Israel, the heads of their father's households, made an offering. They were the leaders of the tribes. They were the ones who numbered them. Well, yeah, said there too. Uh, when, they offer, when they brought their offering before the Lord, six covered carts and 12 oxen, a cart for every two of the leaders and an ox for each one, then they presented them before the tabernacle. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, accept these from them that they may be used in the service of the tents of meeting. You shall give them to the Levites, to each man according to his service. So Moses took the carts and the oxen and gave them to the Levites. Two carts and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon, according to their service. And four carts and eight oxen he gave to the sons of Merari, according to their service, under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron the priest. But he did not give any to the sons of Kohath, because theirs was the service of the holy objects, which they carried on their shoulder. The leaders offered the dedication offering for the altar when it was anointed. So the leaders offered their offering before the, before the altar. Then the Lord said to Moses, let them present their offering one liter each day for the dedication of the altar. This is the third longest chapter in the Bible. Um, so Psalm 119 is the longest chapter. Um, and then Deuteronomy 28 is the second longest chapter. This is the third longest um, this is also the most repetitive. So really the rest of the chapter is first leader gives a series of offerings, so like plates, utensils, bowls. All of it was to be used for the Levites and the priests in relation to the altar, the tabernacle. Animals, um, three burnt offerings per leader, one sin offering, 17 peace offerings per leader. So a lot of sacrifices, all of it being done according to the law. Um, how valuable was this to God? So who was it that slowed down time here? Why is this a repetitive chapter? So they could have come to the tabernacle and just a bunch of stuff, just drop it off. Moses is thankful, the congregation celebrates, whatever, we got to get to Canaan, we're tired of waiting. Look at verse 11 again. How valuable was this to God? For God to say, here's how I want this to happen. I want one leader each day to offer his sacrifice, each one for that day. So you imagine the congregation assembles, and again, I imagine they're, they're in quite a hurry here, right? God says, first day, assemble the congregation, watch. Second day, assemble the congregation, same thing, watch. How much do you think this was meant to connect them, each tribe, to see the importance of the tabernacle and the altar to their identity and to see things being done lawfully. So this wasn't like Nadab and Abihu when they were scorched by God and killed for offering strange fire. This was everything being done here was in complete adherence to the lawful regulation. So you, what they're seeing is sin sacrifices. They're seeing burnt offerings. They're seeing peace offerings of all kinds. And all of it is being done exactly as God commanded by a leader of each tribe. What do you think that teaches the individuals within that tribe? That the leader of their tribe, the figurehead of their tribe, is leading the way on the day the tabernacle was erected and saying, here is where we invest ourselves, right? And for God to slow down time again, and even for us as a reader to say, I want you to read this each day. <laughs> what a shame. When we read it and all we can think about is this is repetitive, this is boring, why am I reading this? Okay, chapter 8. We need to learn 
to value the things that God values the way he values them. And I want you to think about this as an illustration for worship, right? Because I think that they were doing this to honor, reverence, and worship God. And I want you to think about this before I get into that. God knew everything that was about to happen, right? Do you think it took God off guard, the trials they faced in the wilderness, the complaining, the unfaithfulness? Do you think, you know, that was just something that he, wow, didn't anticipate that? And so you imagine this incredible moment of genuine reverence, how God is just trying to pause for a little bit and say, this, this is what it's all about. Let's value this right now. So what's valuable in worship? You know, a lot of times a person can feel like, you know, man, it needs to be more dynamic. We are, our singing or our worship, it, it needs to be dynamic or there's something we need to do to make things more emotionally stimulating. Is that, is that what's most important? Or is it most important to do things the, the way that God says to do them and to do that first? And then we learn to be passionate about that, right? And whatever that is, whatever that looks like, let's start there. And then let's learn to be reverent and passionate about that, right? So this isn't emotionally stimulating, this is not exhilarating, but it's valuable. And God pause for 12 days and just wants us to absorb it. Leave that with you. So chapter 8 and 9, again, all of this is connecting people, priest, Levite, tabernacle together. So the Levites haven't been consecrated yet. Um, They've been set apart. It's been spoken that, hey, here's the Levites, divisions, here's what they're going to do. But they haven't been consecrated yet. Um, Aaron and his sons have, but not not the Levites. So that's what happens in chapter 8. In a sense, you have two Passover events, by the way. So if you look at verse 17, of chapter 8, every firstborn among the sons of Israel is mine, among the men and among the animals. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified them for myself. Two Passover events. So one, the Levites. The Levites, in a sense, because of the Passover, are now serving God in a special way. Chapter 9 is literally the Passover. So I think before Israel leaves Mount Sinai, very deliberately, God is giving them these illustrative, tangible reminders of where they've come from, who God is to them, how to establish themselves in faith, how to connect with God. We'll talk more about that as we go on. So anyway, we've got the cleansing and the consecrating of the Levites. With, by the way, this very brief insertion in chapter 8 about the lampstand, first four verses, which I think is inserted because the priests and the Levites were to take that light inside of the tabernacle and bring that out to the people, just like we as Christians take the light of God, and that's not just to be in heaven somewhere far away, but we bring that light out to the world. So that's what the Levites were supposed to do. They were supposed to embody the light of God's presence among the nation. But I want you to remember something, that there are how many priests? Aaron? Eleazar, Ithamar. And then we're reminded over and over again, Nadab and Abihu, they died because of offering strange fires. There's three priests. For how many Israelites? 603,550 fighting men, not including women and children. Three priests for millions of people. So you've got 8,580 Levites, working Levites, 30 to 50 years old, 
who are going to be helping the priests serve these millions of people within the nation. Some key points in this. For them to be cleansed in verse 7, water needed to be put on them and they had to shave their whole body. So first of all, they'd look like aliens because that would mean their eyebrows, the hair on their head, they would look kind of weird and they would wash their clothes, their bodies. And I think the idea, it's like they were being born again to serve God. You know, again, just in a very elementary way, but a person can't approach God in service like this without being washed and consecrated. And I hope you see the connection there, right? That it's like we can't be born again. We can't be in the kingdom to serve unless we're born again first. So that's worth noting as a process of making them holy. But in chapter 8, verse 10, I want you to imagine the scene. The Levites would be gathered to the tabernacle. And right before that in verse 9, the whole congregation, everybody in Israel, so millions of people crowding around the tabernacle. And what are they doing? The sons of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites. So can you imagine that scene? Aaron saying, or Moses rather, everybody put your hands on the Levites. It's imagine like everybody's like tried to get their hands on them. So again, like 8,000 some Levites and everybody's trying to like touch them. What's the point? The Levites are directly connected to Israel because the Levites, after this, would put their hands on animal sacrifices, right? And if you brought an animal to the altar, like a sin offering, you'd put your hand on that. So again, in a sense, it's like this person, I am connected to this person because they're redeeming me. And I can come to God because this person exists for me, for my relationship with God. So what kind of value does that mean Israel should place on their Levitical brethren? The highest possible value. And again, I'll say this over and over, they failed. And what we're going to see later, when they do fail, God is going to reinforce the value of the Levites and the priests. He's going to say, okay, the Levites, the priests, the altar, you've got to remember that's there for a reason. And if you're doing these things on an individual level, you'll have the faith to trust me, right? So again, this is meant to teach them something about the value of the people who are working to redeem them, right? So 9, 1 through 4, or 1 through 14, they celebrate a Passover. In fact, the first Passover since they left Egypt. The first Passover was very different, right? They're actually in Egypt. They're just beginning. They haven't even come out of Egypt, obviously. And they're sacrificing the lambs among the Egyptians. The angel of death is coming through and killing the firstborn. And the Levites and the priests aren't even in their work yet. So now, now they're practicing the Passover for the first time ever, lawfully, with the tabernacle, the priests, and the Levites. All of this now is happening lawfully for the very first time. So, how do you think that should impact them? Because in chapter 10, verse 11, after this is over, immediately, literally, like the day the second like substitute Passover ends that we'll see, they move. And so just like leaving Egypt, when the Passover is over, you move. What do you think that was meant to do to their faith and attitude toward God as they began to move through the wilderness? So they celebrate the Passover, um, but in 6 through 8, something really interesting happens. The unclean, and remember, 
the unclean were not just supposed to be abandoned and forgotten. The unclean come to Moses and they say, well, in verse 7, though we are unclean because of the dead person, why are we restrained from presenting the offering of the Lord at its appointed time among the sons of Israel? Moses therefore said to them, wait, and I will listen to what the Lord will command concerning you. Amazing. (laughs) What an example. I think Moses' response, wow. If we would just keep that in our hearts, we have some kind of biblical question, doctrinal question. Let's not speak too quickly. Let's not rush into things. Let's see what God has to say about this first, and let's build from there and not go beyond that, right? And by the way, in Numbers, there are a lot of laws that come through listening, God listening. Over and over again, we'll see in the book of Numbers, Israel, Moses, people in Israel, they'll have a question for God. He'll answer their question. They'll say, God, these things seem to contradict each other. God will fix the problem. God always proves he is approachable in the book of Numbers. By the way, you know what happens in Numbers when they don't approach God about their problems? Chaos. Disarray. Destruction. When all they had to do, just approach God. He always in Numbers proves himself to be approachable. And there's many laws in Numbers that only exist because God was approached about a difficult issue. So, Moses tells God, well, let's have a second Passover immediately after the first, well, in the second month at the same time. And if somebody's on a journey or there's somebody who is unclean, there's this second Passover that is a substitute for the first that they can celebrate. Still has to be the same, same ordinance, same practices. And by the way, if they miss that one too, and they're just being lazy, they've sinned. So he's not saying like, well, it doesn't matter. He's not saying, oh, let's keep creating Passovers the whole year. It's like, okay, you've got this one extra opportunity and that's it. So God is approachable and he gives them an alternative, right? And again, I want to leave the lesson thinking about the value of celebrating this right before leaving Sinai. And I want to relate this to 1 Corinthians 11 and we'll bring the lesson to a close. 1 Corinthians 11, something relatable, I think, to us as we're about to partake of the Lord's Supper. You know, there's still certain rituals that we perform that help us remember fundamentally what God has done for us so that we could be his people and be in his kingdom. 1 Corinthians 11 Paul brings up some things, very personal things, about the importance not just of the practice of the Lord's Supper as a ritual, but the heart that we're to have as we partake of it. Because again, the failure of the nation doesn't mean that, well, they, you know, did the Passover wrong, or they shouldn't have even in chapter 7. Why bother offering all those sacrifices if they're going to fail so quickly afterward? No, no. What they failed to do is preserve the heart that they had in those moments. That was their failure. 1 Corinthians 11. As he's saying in the Lord's Supper, we do examine ourselves in verse 28, and so to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Verse 29. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. But for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and in number sleep. Verse 30. You realize what he's saying there? Saying like, look, you guys have a lot of problems. A lot of problems. Serious problems. You know, if we really get to the heart of why you have so much division and sin and pride in the church, it's because you're not taking the Lord's Supper in the right way. Because if you were really reflecting on yourself, if you really remembered what Jesus did for you, 
This nonsense wouldn't be happening. So as we go into the week, you know why we have so many problems? We struggle to get out of sin. We struggle with pride. Because we're not carrying with us what we're remembering every first day of the week. Let's remember that as we partake in just a moment. But that's where we'll stop the lesson. I appreciate your patience as we went through a significant amount of material. But I hope this opens your eyes to see just the value and the richness in all these things that are so easy to overlook that God has given to us to understand who we are and who God is. If there's anything we can do for you this morning in your faith, bring it forward while we stand and sing the invitation song.